The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Morning, everyone. Um, there's uh, just so much that we want to get through for really covering um, a big chunk of basically two chapters in Second Samuel. So uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. We're just going to dive right in uh, into uh, the heart of the sermon today. Father, we ask for your um, help, your ministry to us through the work of your Holy Spirit to open our eyes to see um, particularly what the heart of the gospel message is this morning and to understand the need that that gospel is meeting in each of our lives so that we could understand what it is that we personally are being invited to in receiving the good news of Jesus Christ. And so do that work in our hearts, we ask of you. Amen. Um, So I'm going to do a brief review of the uh, events leading up to what we're going to talk about in chapters 18 and 19, and so we'll do that. And then after the review, I'm going to unpack just the storyline of the things, the events that unfold in these two chapters. And then at the end of the message, I'll see if we can make some uh, uh, lessons drawn out from these historic events, okay, that will center largely on this tension between mercy and justice, Uh, So in our David series, we're sort of at the tail end of what we could call a five-part mini-series that focuses on David's relationship with his children, particularly his son Absalom, who tries to actually overthrow him as king. And so the brokenness of David's family is on full display. Uh, It begins through with this whole tragic chain of events uh, with the firstborn son, Amnon, actually assaulting his sister Tamar. Um, And in revenge, David's third son, uh, Absalom, kills Amnon. So brother attacking sister, and then brother killing brother. Um, And after this murder, Absalom will flee to his grandparents' village in order to hide and evade justice after the murder. And after three years, Absalom is finally granted permission to return to Jerusalem. But even after he enters the city, David forbids him to enter his presence. And a couple of years of this exile, and um, Absalom cannot take it anymore. And so he forces the issue, and he sends word to David, and he says to his father, I would rather you just judge me and put me to death than for it to go on like this, daily experiencing your rejection and hatred of me. So if you think I was in the wrong for avenging my sister, then kill me because that fate is better to me than you pushing me away out of your life. So David finally relents. And he meets with his son, but the reunion wasn't the full reconciliation that Absalom had hoped for. Instead, he ends up getting this cold, formal reception, more from a king than from a father. 
Because David cannot bring himself to fully accept and forgive his son. And so in turn, Absalom hardens his heart against his father and eventually turns the entire nation against David. And so David ends up running for his life once again, fleeing into the wilderness where he had spent over a decade earlier in his life. God returns David to the wilderness because it is in the wilderness that God is able to do some of his deepest work in our lives. Commenting on how God brought all of Israel into the wilderness after their slavery years in Egypt, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 2 says of God speaking to Israel, I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown. What God is saying to Israel was that I long for those days in the wilderness, in that desert when you had nothing else and you were wholly devoted to me and you had eyes only for me and you were devoted to me like a young bride to her groom. In other words, what the wilderness represents for all of us is a place of isolation. It is a place of difficulty and hardship. But nevertheless, in that stark place of the wilderness, it is where we meet with God and experience some of the deepest changes in our life that God wants to accomplish in us. And so it's in this wilderness that David begins to recover a sense of his true identity that he was losing and once again recovers what it means to be a man after God's own heart. In the last message that I preached a couple weeks ago, we saw how Hushai, uh, who was still loyal to David, uh, convinced Absalom to follow his bad advice. Uh, And he did it by playing on Absalom's fears and appealing to his pride. And so basically, rather than striking when the iron is hot, and chasing David the very night he fled while he was still demoralized and disorganized, which really would have been the wiser plan. Um, He follows, Absalom follows Hushai's plan. And he basically is told by Hushai, you know what, just leave David alone. If you chase him, you're not going to be able to find him. And what will be so much better is if you just amass an enormous army out of all the men in the entire nation, and then you ride at the front of that pack as the glorious general of these troops, and then you just wipe David out, just overpowering him with a huge army. And Absalom loves that plan, and he follows it, which would prove to be his fatal mistake because that will give David time to organize his army and prepare for the battle that lies ahead. And so we pick up the story in chapter 18, verses 1 to 4, and it says, David mustered the men who were with him and appointed over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. David sent out his troops, a third under the command of Joab, a third under Joab's brother Abishai, son of Zeruiah, and a third under Ittai, the Gittite. The king told the troops, I myself will surely march out with you. But the men said, you must not go out. If we are forced to flee, they won't care about us. Even if half of us die, they won't care. But you are worth 10,000 of us. It would be better now for you to give us support from the city. 
The king answered, I will do whatever seems best to you. So the king stood beside the gate while all his men marched out in units of hundreds and of thousands. Now, from the last few messages I've been preaching, there's no doubt that David could have genuinely benefited from some major parenting classes. But on the battlefield, he knows exactly what he's doing. And so he wastes no time organizing his forces into three separate divisions. And just when he is ready to lead them into war, he's convinced by his men, you need to stay behind. Because if you fall on the field of battle, we've lost everything. It's interesting that in these key moments in David's life, one of the things we've said over and over again is that if there is something that makes David special, it is that he is humble and teachable enough to listen when people are trying to speak wisdom into his life. And so he listens and he says, okay, I'll stay behind just as you ask. And then as this army is marching past him at the city gate, there's this interesting verse that shows up in verse 5. And it says, The king commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, Be gentle with a young man, Absalom, for my sake. And all the troops heard the king giving orders concerning Absalom to each of the commanders. These are not the words of a general or a king. These are the words of a father. And despite everything that Absalom has done against David, David wants more than anything for his life to be spared. And so he pleads with his generals and with all the men who can hear, if you come across Absalom in war, be gentle with him. Spare him. We've been seeing how in the wilderness, David is recovering his heart that had become cold in his years of serving as the king of Israel. And one of the expressions of a heart that is coming alive to God again is a love that is being rekindled in him for his wayward son. Eugene Peterson writes, deep changes were taking place in David as he descended from the heights of Jerusalem down the Jericho Road into the wilderness of the Jordan. The worst rejection of his life precipitated the most wonderful love Love for Absalom. But there was nothing sentimental about David's command. It issued out of a deeply realized recovery of who he was and who God is. Only when David was truly in touch with himself and truly in touch with God was he able to be in touch with Absalom and able again to love. And so it's with that final word that David sends his troops into the battlefield. When the battle actually begins, it becomes very lopsided very quickly in David's favor. David's men may have been outnumbered, but they, will bat they were battle-hardened veterans who knew how to fight in the wilderness. And so in verses 6 to 8, we find these events. David's army marched out of the city to fight Israel, and the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. There, Israel's troops were routed by David's men. And the casualties that day were great. 20,000 men. The battle spread out over the whole countryside, and the forest swallowed up more men that day than the sword. David is too smart to take on Absalom's much greater army in an open field of battle. Kind of like those 
If you've ever seen those movies of the Revolutionary War, where everyone all sort of lines up with muskets and just kind of shoots at each other. Uh, so instead, he divides his army into three smaller, more nimble units, and then he lures Absalom's army into the forest, where he can practice his guerrilla tactics that he's been basically doing all of his life. And this forest was probably a very dense forest filled with all kinds of ravines and cliffs and dangerous hazards everywhere. And so what we're told is that the topography actually ended up killing more people than even David's men. It was so dangerous. So the battle is basically done, and David has emerged victorious. In verse 9, we find this. Now Absalom happened to meet David's men. He was riding his mule, and as the mule went under the thick branches of a large oak, Absalom's hair got caught in the tree. He was left hanging in midair while the mule he was riding kept on going. Now, this I'm reading is from the NIV, the New International Version, and it's, um, the NIV actually says that Absalom got caught by his hair, but this is one of the areas where the NIV maybe could be a little better if it translated a little more literally, because it doesn't say that he got caught in by his hair. His hair is never mentioned here. What it literally says in the Hebrew Bible is that Absalom was caught in his head. And so more likely, his head is probably wedged in some branches by the neck, and he cannot get out. His hair very well may have been tangled as part of that. In verses 10 to 17, the story goes on, and it says this. When one of the men saw what had happened, he told Joab, I just saw Absalom hanging in an oak tree. Joab said to the man who had told him this, What? You saw him? Why didn't you strike him to the ground right there? Then I would have had to give you ten shekels of silver and a warrior's belt. But the man replied, Even if a thousand shekels were weighed out into my hands, I would not lay a hand on the king's son. In our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, protect the young man Absalom for my sake. And if I had put my life in jeopardy and nothing is hidden from the king, you would have kept your distance from me. Joab said, I'm not going to wait like this for you. So he took three javelins in his hand and plunged them into Absalom's heart while Absalom was still alive in the oak tree. And ten of Joab's armor bearers surrounded Absalom, struck him, and killed him. Then Joab sounded the trumpet, and the troops stopped pursuing Israel, for Joab halted them. They took Absalom, threw him into a big pit in the forest, and piled up a large heap of rocks over him. Meanwhile, all the Israelites fled to their homes. You know, Joab is um, David's nephew, if you remember from earlier messages. And he has been by David's side from the earliest days of David running into the wilderness. And his loyalty to David has never been questioned through all of those years. But Joab is also a bit of a loose cannon with some strong opinions of his own, oftentimes that differed from David's viewpoint. And so when it came to sparing Absalom, Joab was convinced that this was a bad idea. And so he took matters into his own hands and killed Absalom himself. And what's clear by the accounting of the death of Absalom is this, is that Joab was not filled with some kind of vengeful bloodlust. He, jo- he kills Absalom out of a sense of justice. And so as soon as Absalom is dead, he blows the trumpet 
And he calls his own soldiers to back off from the Israelites who are being routed. And he basically, in essence, ends the war right there in order to minimize the casualties and allow no more bloodshed to occur. Because he knew that if Absalom was dead, the battle would be over. Israel would flee. I think Joab also looked ahead at what would happen if Absalom was allowed to live. And he realized that's what was going to happen because David was not going to kill Absalom. And he realized if Absalom lives, there is going to be no end to the trouble in David's kingdom. Because this guy, Absalom, is going to cause trouble year after year for the kingdom. And so at core, Joab is a realist. To Joab, David's love for his son was not some inspiring message of beauty and tenderness. To Joab, it was a sign of weakness. It was a problem that needed to be solved. And he knew that David would not have the will to solve it on his own. So he, in essence, thought he was doing David a favor when he killed Absalom. What follows next is an unusually detailed account of how that news from the battlefield would reach David's ears. In verse 19, it says, Now Ahimaaz, son of Zadok, said, Let me run and take the news to the king that the Lord has vindicated him by delivering him from the hand of his enemies. So Ahimaaz, if you remember from the last message, is the son of the priest Zadok. And he wants to be the one that brings the good news to David. And so he tells Joab, let me be the messenger. In verses 20 to 21, though, it says this, You are not the one to take the news today, Joab told him. You may take the news another time, but you must not do so today because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to a Cushite, Go tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed down before Joab and ran off. And so in his naive enthusiasm, Ahimaaz wants to bring the good news of the victory of the battlefield to David, but Joab is shrewder, and he says, this is not going to be good news to David's ear. And you do not want to be the guy that tells him that his son is dead. So let this anonymous soldier be the fall guy, and let him tell David what has happened today. But Ahimaaz won't give up. And so in verses 22 to 23, it says, Ahimez, son of Zadok, again said to Joab, Come what may, please let me run behind the Cushite. But Joab replied, My son, why do you want to go? You don't have any news that will bring you a reward. He said, Come what may, I want to run. So Joab said, Run. Then Ahimez ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. So Ahimez chooses a better route than the Cushite. And so although he left later than the soldier, he ends up reaching the city before him. In verses 24 to 25, while David was sitting between the inner and outer gates, the watchman went up to the roof of the gateway by the wall. As he looked out, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out to the king and reported it. The king said, if he is alone, he must have good news. And the runner came closer and closer. So David is optimistic. He sees a messenger coming from the battlefield, and he says, this guy must be a bearer of good news. And the suspension builds, though, when a second runner is spotted by the watchman. In verse 26, it says, Then the watchman saw another runner, and he called down to the gatekeeper, Look, another man running alone. The king said, He must be bringing good news, too. The watchman said, It seems to me that the first one runs like Ahimaaz, son of Zadok. He's a good man, the king said. 
he comes with good news. Then Ahimaaz called out to the king, all is well. He bowed down before the king with his face to the ground and said, praise be to the Lord your God. He has delivered up those who lifted their hands against my Lord the king. Now, it's not clear what David's logic is in thinking that these two messengers have good news to bring, but Ahimaaz seems to affirm it. And he says, all is well. I bring good news to you from the battlefield. But then David reveals what is really consuming him in verse 29. The king asked, is the young man Absalom safe? Ahimaaz answered, I saw a great commotion, confusion, just as Joab was about to send the king's servant and me, your servant. But I don't know what it was. Ahimaaz can't bring himself to tell David the bad news. And so he plays dumb. And he says, well, you know, when I was leaving, there was a big ruckus. And I wasn't quite sure what all the commotion was about. So maybe the next guy can actually tell you. Because I left before I found out what was actually happening there. Verse 30 to 31, the king said, stand aside and wait here. So he stepped aside and stood there. Then the Cushite arrived and said, my lord, the king, hear the good news. The Lord has vindicated you today by delivering you from the hand of all who rose up against you. And then David repeats the exact same question. The king asked the Cushite, is the young man Absalom safe? The Cushite replied kind of cluelessly, may the enemies of my Lord, the king and all who rise up to harm you be like that young man. And there it is, the dagger in David's heart. His worst fears realized, your son is dead. Now we find the most emotional words in this entire story in verse 33. The king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. As he went, he said, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Who but a parent could understand words like this? Even though you hate me, even though you wished me dead, I would have traded my life for yours in a heartbeat, if only I could. Eugene Peterson comments on this and says, these have got to be the saddest, most heart-rending words ever spoken. Words wrenched out of David's gut when the report was brought to him that his son had been murdered in the forest of Ephraim. David was no stranger to death, no stranger to tears, no stranger to murder, no stranger to disappointment, no stranger to sin. But no event combined all of these elements with such intensity, yes, ferocity, as did the matter of Absalom. When his beloved friend Jonathan died and David received the news, David marshaled all of his eloquence to compose a beautiful lament in honor of his fallen friend. But on hearing of the news of the death of Absalom, David is absolutely crushed. 
It's interesting that in the dozens and dozens of psalms that David wrote that are now in our Bible, basically capturing just about every major life event in David's life, there is not a single psalm attributed to the death of Absalom. Not one psalm that David wrote in this occasion. It is as if there is no song in David's heart that could bear the weight of the pain that he feels in this moment. There is no desire in him whatsoever to try to write a song. And so the only words that David can muster are these pathetic cries over and over again. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son, my son, Absalom. News will reach Joab as to how David is acting in this moment. What his state of mind is. And in verse 1 to 4 of chapter 19, Joab was told, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. And for the old army, the victory that day was turned into mourning. Because on that day, the troops heard it said, the king is grieving for his son." The men stole into the city that day as men steal in who are ashamed when they flee from battle. The king covered his face and cried aloud, Oh, my son, Absalom. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. This has to be one of the saddest victory marches ever recorded in history. Rather than returning to the city triumphant and celebrating, David's soldiers end up returning and entering into that city with their tail between their legs, filled with shame, as if they had done something wrong. It's crazy, isn't it? All of them have just risked their life to fight for David, and now they are embarrassed of their victory, as if by winning the battle, they have just violated their king. And all of that was because of the way that David was acting. And this, to the eyes of Joab, is an intolerable situation. And so he travels to the city, and he confronts David and rebukes him. And in verses 5 to 7, look at what it says. Then Joab went into the house of the king and said, Today you have humiliated all your men. You have just saved your life, they, who have just saved your life and the lives of your sons and daughters and the lives of your wives and concubines. And then Joab says this to David, you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. You have made it clear today that the commanders and their men mean nothing to you. I see that you would be pleased if Absalom were alive today and all of us were dead. Now go out and encourage your men. I swear by the Lord that if you don't go out, not a man will be left with you by nightfall. This will be worse for you than all the calamities that have come on you from your youth until now. (laughs) A slap in the face to David, huh? Now, Joab's attack against David may seem a bit unfair and a little over the top. But there is an undeniable grain of truth in it, isn't there? And I think it probably accurately captured how most of David's army felt that day, which was basically the sentiment, 
You don't shed a tear for all of our brothers that have died on the field of battle this day for you, fighting for you. But now you cannot stop crying for your son who would try to kill you. And their logic is this. If Absalom had won the battle this day, then all of us would have been killed. And based on the way that you are acting, David, it seems like you would have preferred that outcome. You would have rather all of us be dead and your son alive than the other way around by how you're acting in the face of our victory this day. And so once again, David is humble and wise enough to know when he is being rightly rebuked. And so in verse 8, it says, So the king got up and took his seat in the gateway. When the men were told the king is sitting in the gateway, they all came before him. Meanwhile, the Israelites had fled to their homes. And so David goes to the city gate, and he congratulates his men. I don't think very enthusiastically, but he did it. He did it so that the morale of his troops doesn't absolutely fall apart. That's the story in a nutshell. So what can we learn from it? And what are the lessons that we ought to draw from these events? I want to begin by making this first teaching point, and it is this. Justice is needed for a broken world filled with wrongdoing and sin. Justice is needed for a broken world filled with wrongdoing and sin. What I'm saying is is this. It's tempting to paint Joab as the bad guy here, isn't it? Because after all, David begged him, please spare my son. Show mercy to him. And Joab cold-heartedly disobeyed David's orders and killed him. As we established earlier, though, this was not vindictive bloodlust. This was justice in the eyes of Joab. And the truth is this, that as long as Absalom was allowed to live, David's rule as king would always be threatened. And that's a problem. Even God seems to be set on dealing definitively with Absalom because if you remember from the previous chapter, when Absalom was fooled into following Hushai's advice, we find this commentary from the narrator. Absalom and all the men of Israel said the advice of Hushai the archite is better than that of Ahithophel. And then the narrator inserts, for the Lord had determined to frustrate the good advice of Ahithophel in order to bring disaster on Absalom. In other words, what the Bible itself seems to be telling us is this is not just Joab going rogue. It seems like God himself is orchestrating the downfall of Absalom. And so in a way, you could argue that Joab was simply carrying out God's justice, the justice that David did not have the stomach to carry out himself because it was his son. After all, Absalom was a murderer. He did kill his brother in cold blood. He was also guilty of the high crime of treason, trying to unlawfully grab David's throne from his father and claim it for himself. And because of Absalom, the entire kingdom was now a mess. 
Brother killing brother. All of that blood that was shed that day, you could argue, was on the hands of Absalom and his rebellion. And so in a way you could say, this demands justice. And it was a justice that David was unwilling to carry out in order to restore his kingdom. I, I referenced this quote by Miroslav Volv in last year's Christmas series about trying to understand the need for God's wrath and justice in a broken world. And I think it's helpful for us today, and so I want to read it again for you today. Miroslav Volv writes, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love. And God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to that carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against the God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. Do you understand what Miroslav Volv is saying? In a world, in a tragic world, filled with so much evil and sin, where people are daily being victimized and abused, killed and raped, and stolen from, and cheated, and lied to. How can we not long for justice, for a day of reckoning, when all of the wrongs will be set right once and for all? When the cry of the victim will be heard by a just God? And so, when you look at this story it's hard to say who the hero is and who the villain is. There is an argument to be made for Joab's actions that day. Absalom needed to be dealt with. And yet we can also at the same time understand how unbearable the cost of that justice felt to David. Because my second point is this. A world in which there is only justice without mercy leaves no survivors. A world in which there is only justice without mercy leaves no survivors. You know, 
It's one thing to wish hell on people like Hitler and Pol Pot and Stalin. And that, those are easy ones, isn't it? For serial rapists and serial murderers and all the horrible people in history. And it's one thing to want a total stranger who commits a heinous crime to be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. But what do you do when it's your own son? How do you handle that one? That's the dilemma that David faced. And then I'm sure what was part of David's calculus is, and what about my own life? If Absalom deserves that kind of punishment that Joab meted out that day for his crimes, then don't I deserve the same fate? Because I did the very same things my son did. And as we've seen throughout this series, David was flawed in so many ways. And he himself was guilty of some pretty horrible crimes, rape and murder being among them. And in a way, you could argue that the entire story of David's life has been building up to the tension that we find in this moment. And it is the tension between mercy and justice. And I don't think you could just argue that it was just sentimentality or even a father's love for a son that caused David to want mercy for his son Absalom. I think it's because David was shown mercy by God in his life over and over again. And so David understood that without God's kindness and mercy, he deserved the same fate that fell on his son Absalom. And so what he longed for was the same mercy to be shown to his son Absalom. John Woodhouse comments on this tension like this. Which principle would you prefer to prevail in human relationships? Love or justice? I suspect that your answer to that question is, it all depends. There are times when we would like love to triumph over justice, particularly when we ourselves are the ones in trouble with justice. At other times, it does not seem right for the claim of justice to be outweighed by compassion. In a world deeply affected by human sin, there is no avoiding the tension. It is an aspect of the fallenness of the world that love and justice do not meet. Parents with troublesome sons or daughters can agonize over this. Their love for their children is strong and true. But is it right to try to protect them from the consequence of their bad, perhaps criminal behavior? How can love and justice meet? The truth is that David's love for Absalom was not able to save the rebel from Joab's justice. And Joab's sense of justice had no space for David's love for his son. The situation was impossible. As Woodhouse points out, there are no easy answers here as to what should have been done with the Absalom problem. It all revolves around this tension between justice and mercy or justice and love. 
And the biggest problem that we find in David's kingdom are not the Philistines, are not the people out there. The biggest threat to David's kingdom is himself and the sin that lies in his heart and now has been transferred to his children. And this tension between mercy and justice is, I think, one of the most important ways that the story of David anticipates the good news of Jesus Christ. The closest we come to finding an answer in David's story, I think, is in chapter 18, verse 33. The king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. As he went, he said, Oh, my son, Absalom. My son, my son, Absalom. If only I had died instead of you. A thousand years later, God would embrace the heart of David, the heart of a father, when he would send his son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place. But for God, this wasn't just a longing, a sentiment. He put his feelings into action by offering Jesus to die on the cross and receive the punishment that we deserved. And so this is where my final teaching point is simply this. On the cross of Jesus, perfect justice met perfect love and mercy. Because on the cross of Christ, Jesus met the demands of a just and holy God and paid the penalty for our sins. And Jesus also demonstrated mercy Rather than putting that punishment on us, he took it on himself. Romans 5, verse 6 to 11, the Apostle Paul comments on this truth with these words. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely with it will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the good news of the gospel, and there are two parts to it. When we look at a broken world filled with abuse and evil and sin, God's message is this. Nobody gets away with anything. The eyes of God see it all. And there is a judgment day coming where every trespass, every wrongdoing will be judged by a holy God. And what the Bible tells us is that's going to be a terrifying day when the judgment of God falls on this world. For every abuse, for every victim, for every cry of justice that God says one day, I will hear it. And I will honor it. But then there is also this message that that judgment can pass because of what Christ 
has done for us in his mercy and in his love. And so the whole of human history, the whole of humankind basically has these two destinies. Either to face the wrath and the judgment of a holy God or by faith to receive the forgiveness of our sins because of what Christ has done for us. And what that enables us to do is not to take revenge in our own hands, but entrust it all to God and pray for the salvation of everyone, even our enemies and those who hurt us. Because just as David understood, if I need that mercy and grace, so do even those who are attacking me. And may his love be even for them. Let's pray. I think the truth is we are all very selective in those moments when we wish that God would be just and when we wish he would be merciful. And I think the way that it typically plays out is when it's to our advantage that God would be just, like when we feel wronged and when we feel hurt or betrayed or abused, I think the common instinct is to wish that justice would happen, that those people would get what they deserve as we are filled with a sense of self-righteous anger against others. But as we look at the heart of David, we see something really different. We see a man who through much of his life, through all of his life, has been the recipient of God's grace. And so even in the face of his rebellious son Absalom, who's trying to kill him, the heart of David is this. Spare him. Show him mercy. Because this is the mercy every one of us is in desperate need of. I want to say this. I don't think we can really embrace forgiveness of somebody who has offended us if there is not justice as part of that story. For forgiveness and mercy to have integrity, there has to also be justice. And the truth is this, is for all the wrong and all the evils and all of the horrible things that have happened in our world, there is a judgment day coming. What a terrifying judgment that's going to be. But the gospel message, the good news found in the pages of Scripture is this, that God knows none of us could stand under his holy judgment. And so he found an answer that David never could find to the dilemma of justice and mercy. By killing his own son, by giving himself up as an atoning sacrifice for the sins that we have committed, And so on the cross of Jesus Christ, perfect justice meets perfect love and forgiveness. And so my hope and my sincere prayer for every person in this room this day would be that you would know that mercy of God. You would know that you are in need of that mercy. It's not up to you to decide whether your life measures up, but to the God who created you, who will one day stand as your judge, but could also, by faith, be your Savior, the one who has paid your penalty on your behalf out of his love for you. 
And so I pray that that same mercy that David understood from the heart of God would be a mercy that you would claim as your own by faith. Would you just pray that for a few minutes and then our worship team will lead us into one song before we come to the Lord's table and take communion. Let's pray.